Good morning. I thought there was no better way to start today. Um, no, I love that kid. He makes me laugh every time. And um, I thought it related perfectly with our lesson today um, because today we're seeing how James defines faith. And I think a huge part of that is how we love each other and how we love God. And so before we jump into our lesson today, let's go to our God in prayer. Father God, I thank you that you are a God who loves us beyond anything we could ever imagine. God, I thank you that your love is the example set for us so that we can love each other and we can love you. I pray today that you would speak to us through this passage, Lord, that you would open our minds and our hearts as you speak to us, God, and you would just give us those little gentle nudgings from you as to how we can live out our faith as we leave here today. Thank you for all these ladies in this room. In your name I pray, amen. So let's jump right into James 2 now. We're looking at James 2 verses 14 through 26. And James starts this section with a question in verse 14. It says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? And that is the question that he is going to go about to answer in this passage. And to do that, he is going to use four different illustrations. The first is the unkempt or the hungry brother or sister. The second is the demons. Third, Abraham. And fourth, Rahab. Each illustration is going to be followed by a summary statement of what we can learn about faith and works from that illustration. Now I realize before we jump into this, I want to define works for you a little bit here. Let's start with that because as we talked about last week, I love how Betsy was saying how they should just flow out of who we know we are in God. They come out of who we are. We are children of the mighty king. Therefore, our works are just the acts that flow out of that. They're not acts, yeah, amen, acts done um, in order to earn our salvation, but they're done because we're so grateful for this salvation in which we stand. They are the things that say, like father, like child. We live the way that we live because he did it for us. And so we're going to look at four illustrations that define faith and show us how that faith and works comes together into perfect unity. The first two illustrations are negative. They're going to tell us what faith is not. And the second two illustrations are positive. They will tell us what faith is. So let's jump right into our first illustration. This is the ill-clad, the unkempt, hungry brother or sister found in verses 15 through 17. It says, suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well-fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. 
So here in this illustration, we see that merely wishing someone well in the face of their need and in the face of our ability to meet that need is an indication that our well wishes are probably not very sincere. Now this go in peace that's stated here is a familiar form of Jewish dismissal. It's like saying goodbye, have a good day. But in Matthew 25, Jesus promises the kingdom to those who feed and clothe one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. And in John, 1 John chapter 3, he denies that anybody who does not provide for a brother and sister in need can even have real love. Because love is shown not just in words or in speech, but in action and in truth. Now this particular illustration is convicting. It reminds me of what we looked at last week and the video we ended with last week. And it's convicting because perhaps too often I and us as a group maybe were content offering mere words when God's calling us into some sort of action. So this brings us to our second illustration. This is our second negative illustration, what faith is not, and that is the illustration of the demons found in verses 18 through 20. It says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? So James writes this part of his letter in an argumentative style, sometimes called a diatribe. Here he introduces an imaginary objector who states his or her own viewpoint, which then furls about his argument. This style strongly suggests that this is probably an actual argument that he's facing with the believers at that time. He's combating people who are setting forth an incorrect view of faith, and that is that some have faith, others have deeds. So this imaginary objector here is claiming that faith and deeds fall under the category of like spiritual gifts something that only certain people possess and others don't. How then could James argue that Christians should have both faith and deeds? Now James here is showing that faith and works are not special gifts that a Christian may or may not have, but only where works is present is genuine faith present. There is an inseparability between faith and works. So what kind of faith does this faith without works amount to? Well, James shows the poverty of this kind of faith by comparing it to the faith of demons. What a harsh comparison. This kind of faith is mere knowledge about God, but leads to nothing more than abject fear before God. They do not have the peace that comes from salvation. Now, once again, this is our second picture of what faith is not. It's not just merely saying the right thing, but it goes hand in hand with doing the right thing, as we will see in the following two illustrations. 
So we come to the third, and that is Abraham. Verses 21 through 24, it says, Was not our father Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and that his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Now, I think there are two words in this passage that come up twice that we easily skip over. And I think they are really crucial for understanding here what James is and what he isn't saying. We might use the words, you see as an equivalent to, you know, now then, or so. However, they can also be used literally, you see. You see that I spilled coffee on my shirt, which I didn't, don't look for it. Um, (laughs) um, (laughs) It's a visually apparent thing to anyone who is close enough to notice, you see. So what if James is using those words in this sense? Let's look at it again. You see that his faith and his actions were working together. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, not by faith alone. So this perhaps is not about how someone is justified, but how can you tell that they are justified? His concern is not with the means for justification, but the evidence for it you see. Isn't that the point that James is making throughout this whole passage after all? And isn't this the nature of Abraham's faith? It is not useless faith, but active faith. That is what James is trying to illustrate here. His faith and his actions were working together. He had an active faith, a working faith, a faith in cooperation with his works. They are partners. Now this verse that James cites, Genesis 15, 6, shows that it found its ultimate significance and ultimate meaning in Abraham's life of obedience. Now, I like how Motyer explained this section in his commentary. He said that at first we might look at this story and wonder, why did God even need this act of obedience on Abraham's behalf? Didn't God know Abraham's heart all along? Well, here in the Bible, we get a little bit of a glimpse into the mind of God. And that is by something that they use throughout scripture sometimes. It's by picturing him a little bit like a man. In order that divine ideas, divine mysteries can be brought down to our level so we can appreciate their meaning and significance. The Lord didn't need this process of validation. He knew from the start. But he is represented as if needing it so that we can share his point of view. And I also have to think of what a huge growing experience this would have been for Abraham, taking that step and offering his only child would have been a huge step in trust of the faithfulness of God. 
And now, generations and generations later, we're still talking about it because this is a huge symbol for us of how faith is presented in action. Now, this illustration of Abraham stands in stark contrast to the illustration of the demons. On the one hand, the demons believe and they shudder in fear. On the other hand, Abraham believes and he is called a friend of God. So there is a faith productive only of fear and there is a faith productive of friendship. This brings us to our fourth illustration, and that is Rahab. This is one that I think is especially neat that it's included. It says in verses 25 through 26, In the same way was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So I think this illustration is really neat because we may not be able to fully relate to Abraham, this great biblical figure of supreme faith, but maybe, just maybe, we can relate to Rahab, the prostitute. The contrast is neat. Abraham, the father of the faithful, Rahab, the foreigner, Abraham, the respected, Rahab, the disreputable, Abraham, a major Bible figure, Rahab, a minor participant, Abraham, a man, and Rahab, a woman. And yet they both are illustrating the same truth. You see, I think that is the point for James even calling her Rahab the prostitute. It's to point out these huge differences because a fully comprehensive statement is being made here. All the way from Abraham to Rahab, faith is seen in action. Now Rahab had heard of God and what he had done for his people. She believed who he was as Lord. Therefore, she didn't just say to them, I hope it all works out for you. But she acted in faith in light of the reality she knew to be true. She demonstrated her faith with her actions. Now, once again, we see a contrast. Rahab contrasts the first illustration completely. In the first illustration, remember, we had the unkempt, hungry brother or sister coming and just being wished well. Here in Rahab, we see her seeing a need of God's people and meeting it instead of just wishing them well. So now that we've looked at all four, let's look at all four together. Now, I realize this is kind of a complicated chart, but I like it. So we're going to try to explain it. Um, I was trying to lay them all out together and show you how they all connect. So let's see if we can understand this. So the first two illustrations, as I stated before, are negative illustrations. What faith is not. The second two illustrations are positive. What faith is. Now, they each have a direction. And by that I mean, in the first illustration, their faith is acted out towards, well, not acted out, towards man. It's manward. They didn't choose to care for the need of their brother or sister. In the second illustration and the third, 
It's focused on our relationship with God and how our faith affects our relationship with God. So with the demons, the negative illustration, we see that their fear only produces within them a fear, or their faith produces within them a fear of God. But with Abraham, we see his faith produces obedience and trust in God, his faithfulness, and his promises. And then the final illustration is once again directed towards man, how we relate with each other, because Rahab has the spies come to her and she meets the need of God's people. And so you can almost look at it like a circle. And here in the center of the circle, we have the two center illustrations that deal with our relationship with God, because that is at the center of our faith, how we relate with God. We should answer him in obedience. We should trust his faithfulness, trust his promises. And instead of fear, we have peace with God. And then extending out from that circle, we have the two manward illustrations and how we relate to people, because that is intimately connected with the center and how we relate with God. But it's also out here. This is how we relate to each other. We meet the needs of our brothers and sisters, just as Rahab did. And so I believe that here, James is defining faith once again with the royal law showing that we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourselves. Now, as stated before, each of these ends with a little summary statement um, at the end of the verse. The first illustration shows us that faith without evidential works is dead. The second shows that faith separated from works which validate it is barren, just like the faith of demons. The third shows that works of obedience provide the evidence that our faith is true. And the fourth shows the activity of works reveals our faith as a living faith. So, how does James define faith in our passage? I think he does so with these four illustrations showing what faith is not and what faith is. Faith is not simply wishing well without action when a brother or sister is in need. Faith is not mere confession of belief without the peace with God that faith brings with it. Faith is acts done in obedience, trusting God and trusting his promises. And finally, faith is actions taken towards our brothers or sisters to demonstrate that our faith is living. James does not dispute the power of faith to save, but he is concerned with defining the true nature of that faith. Now I wanted to pause here for a moment and talk a little bit about Paul. Now I think too often we take James and we put him against Paul and we try to figure out how they aren't really contradicting each other and then in the end we kind of miss what James is actually saying. And so I didn't want to focus on this too much, but as stated in week one, Paul's focus in the verses that are usually put up against James is on how we come to faith, where James' focus is on how we live in faith. And I think that they really both show a comprehensive picture of what faith is and how it flows through love. 
You see, Paul and James both agree about the necessity of love flowing from our faith. Remember 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage. Often quoted at weddings, love is patient and love is kind. Paul shows that love is the natural outflow from our faith. And Romans 6, Paul says, What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? So he shows that obedience should come from our faith. We have died to sin. Some summarize it this way. Paul shows us that we are saved by faith alone. James shows us that saving faith never remains alone. You see, in Paul, we are intimately united with Christ. Therefore, obedience flows out of our faith, as we see in Romans 1.5. Faith for Paul and for James includes commitment to obedience. It is no cheap faith. It's active and obedient, as James further shows us. So going back to our passage today. What does James say faith is? Faith is seen as having or possessing as part of its reality works. And faith is the root from which all good works grow. Just as later we see the example of the body and the spirit, the unity of faith and works is required just as the unity of the body and the spirit is required for life. They belong together. Now I like how Motier says it. He says the life of faith is more than a private, long past transaction of the heart with God. It is the life of active consecration, seen in the obedience which holds nothing back from God, and the concern which holds nothing back from human need. Now as I prepared this lecture and studied this passage, I had one fear about this passage. I fear that some of you have what one commentator called a tender conscience. Some of you may hear all of this and leave here questioning whether you have true faith at all. Now, it can be a blessing to have a tender conscience, but it can also cause you to only see your flaws and miss what might be some genuine fruit in your life. This passage and this lesson is not meant to make you question where you stand with God. However, it should make us pause just for a moment and ask ourselves, where does the evidence of our faith seen and how can we live it out even more? Now, others of you might have the opposite reaction. You might right away run a little diagnostic on your life and assume, I'm probably fine. And I know I can fall into this category far too easily. But for those of us, we need to pray as David prayed in Psalm 19:12. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. And we need to ask God to reveal to us ways in which we might just miss what he's calling us to do. So in conclusion and application here, I think this text brings about some really important questions. 
The first is, is our faith demonstrated in the way that we treat others? Are we too often well-wishers and not taking action to care for others? In leaders meeting, we were talking about what would it look like if we all left here today and showed love to our neighbors, even on our streets. What if we all did that? And secondly, is our faith in God producing within us a spirit of fear? Or is it drawing us near in friendship to the God we serve? That question stuck out to me this week. In fact, it's stuck out to me for the past few weeks. Um, I've been kind of praying through the Glenn Kirk whys, the we believes. And the one that I focused on for the past like two weeks is that we believe that God can be trusted. And as I prayed through that, I realized how much I live in a spirit of fear and worry how much I go about my days worrying about things happening to the people that I love. And as I thought about this, God can be trusted. I realized how much I wish I could be like Abraham, trusting God's promises and his faithfulness. Now, I have to be honest, last year I made a pro-con list of my worries Are they positive or are they negative? Are they doing anything positive for me or is it all negative? And to be perfectly honest, my pros outweighed my cons. So I was like, all right, well, I'm just going to hold on to them. They're obviously doing me a lot of good. And then on Sunday, Tim was talking and he was saying that, Worry doesn't really prepare us for things. In fact, the things we worry about are usually not the actual things that happen. Now, I, my pro was, I'm really prepared for bad things to happen because I worry about them every minute of the day. And so I quickly realized that that's not actually what's happening. And I also believed that my worries and my fears were helping me to appreciate my blessings even more because I'm always afraid of losing them. But I realized that it's quite the opposite I'm not fully able to appreciate the blessing that is my husband or my home because I'm always living in fear of losing them. And so today, I'm hoping to continue holding on to this truth that God can be trusted. One of the devotionals I read said, what if instead of going through our days expecting bad things to happen, we expected good things? What if we got up today and expected God to bless us? What if we expected him to answer our prayers? What if we expected him to continue to be faithful? Because the cure for worrying, as Tim showed us, was remembering our story like Abraham remembering God's faithfulness and trusting it today. And so as I ask this question of myself, I hope that I can continue to draw near in friendship to God and put aside that spirit of fear. And the third question is, are there ways that God has been nudging you to act out your faith 
that you have perhaps pushed aside or forgotten. I don't know how many times I've come to church and heard something really like that nudged me in the service and then I drove home and went about my day and completely forgot about it or chose to forget about it um, and done the same thing here. And so I would just encourage you to notice those gentle nudgings of God calling us to act out our faith. And the last question is, how does your daily life present evidence of the faith in which you live? I think this is a really good question to ask as you go about your day, as you walk through the grocery store and encounter strangers, as you drive, as you encounter little interruptions in your day, or just the everyday things. Is your faith evident. Now I wanted to close with this prayer that N.T. Wright closed his um, study with this week. I really liked it. It says, pray, ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you where in your life and experience your faith needs to translate into action. Sit quietly and listen to what he says. Now talk to God about the steps you want to take to live a full Jesus-shaped life. Now I thought that would be a great application, say pray this prayer this week, but then I thought you might forget. So I thought no better time than the present. So let's take two minutes with this prayer Pray this prayer. Ask the Spirit to reveal to you things. Listen to those gentle nudgings of the Lord. And then after two minutes, we're going to close with a song called Do Something by Matthew West. And so let's just pray together. Let's close in prayer. (laughs) Father God, I thank you for this lesson today, Lord. I pray that you would just be nudging our hearts towards um, how you want us to live out our faith and our love for you and for each other. I thank you for all the ladies in this room. I pray that as we leave here today, we would just be lights for you as we go about our days and encounter people, Lord. Help us just to show your love because you showed such great love to us. Thank you so much for all that you're doing in our lives. In your name I pray, amen.